I'd like to invite you to uh, a outdoor uh, service that will have happen on September 20th at 5 p.m. And uh, it will be outside. It will be uh, just north of the sanctuary between the church and the youth house. We'd like to have you uh, bring a uh, chair, a lawn chair. And if you don't have one, then we'll provide a chair for you. Also, if you'd bring a mask and uh, make sure that we keep our social distancing six feet or more apart unless you're with your family. We are uh, going to have, uh, we will not have refreshments, but if you want to bring a refreshment, then uh, you, you're more than welcome to do, uh, bring a drink or a snack. And then um, we will be having our church service there and it will last just about a half hour to 45 minutes and it will be dealing with singing. We'll be singing some songs, it'll be a short devotion. And then we, I'd like to introduce, or we as elders introduce our office administrator, Maddie Moore. And of course, then there'll be some fellowship uh, together with each other. It's been over six months since we've uh, met together and uh, we're looking forward to uh, this time. And we'll see you on Sunday, September 20th at 5 p.m. I know I'm coming at you with, uh, with a lot of stuff. Welcome to seminary. Uh, and uh, be patient. You have this material elsewhere as well. And so much of this you can go back and reflect on as, as we continue on. So I will say it is my great privilege to be with you. Josh, do I have a clicker over that way? I think so. Oh, it's in my jacket. If you would grab that, that makes it a little bit easier. We're talking now about the power of the Holy Spirit, the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And I think I want to share why am I here at all uh, in one sense. I'll tell you, I, I, I was in, I had experienced the Lord a lot in my life. I had privileges to be in Christian leadership and went out with, in the early days of youth with a mission and then team mission and out sometimes alone and working with Indians and Vancouver Island and in the Caribbean. And yet I knew I'd experienced God, but I didn't have the answers. And I ended up, even after graduation as an English literature major, being an interim pastor in a church in Bellevue in Seattle area, church of white collar executives. And I was 21 years old, single English literature major, after one sermon, we all knew I didn't have anything more to say. And, and it's nice to speak out of your experience, but I'll tell you, I left there feeling like a complete failure. Thankfully, it was only two or three months. I was an interim pastor. I wasn't obviously being called in to do the big job. But I was struggling. And one of the things I was struggling with is the doctrine of the Trinity. I just had a course in John Milton, the famous... Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and so much more. But he wrote a 70-page tractate against the doctrine of the Trinity using Greek and Hebrew, and, well, these are brilliant men. And so as I, even as a senior at the university, kept asking others, well, where in the Bible? Show me in the Bible. Why do we believe in the Trinity? And I'd get answers like, well, it's a mystery. It's like a ball rolling over a two-dimensional plane. You can't understand it. And that was the only answer I was getting. So I was struggling with all of this, and the Lord opened the doors to go to Switzerland, Labrie with Francis Schaeffer. And 
Well, to be honest, I received a Dear John letter there, too, which is sometimes the best thing we can receive. Though, by Dear John, I mean a girlfriend was saying, goodbye, I found a better guy, I'm out of here. So, uh, you know, trying to deal with this, but it was a good trying to deal with it, because philosophically I was asking, who am I? And not only who is Scott, but I began, I began this circular uh, spiral into a black hole, a philosophic black hole, because starting to ask, who am I? People say, well, know yourself. Well, there's no self to know. I felt like I was falling into this sand pit with no bottom, and there was nothing to grab hold of to call Scott, and nothing to grab hold of to call human. And so I'm, what am I? Who am I as a human being? And a friend, well, it was just, you know, why chatter? Why laugh? All this stuff's stupid. Uh, maybe you felt that way sometimes as well. And a friend wisely said, hey, stop looking within. That is a black hole. Look up. Many of others, others have said that too. And that made me begin to think, wow, I, I need to know this God. I, I've been a pastor. I've been a youth worker, a missionary. I want to know if Trinity is really true. And so I was exhorted to get into the Bible yourself find out. And as I began to see passage after passage, many of them were looking at, it was like they're in the Swiss chalet looking out in the Alps. It's like the, the windows of heaven opened up. It's like that fullness of God began to flood into my life. And I began to realize who I am as a person, what I am as a person, because God is tripersonal, is directly related to God, my creator. There's nothing in me it is God, and by that, a kind of remaking of my life. Well, the person and power of the Holy Spirit, that other comforter, that's why our talking about Trinity is so dead center. God is the center of everything, and if he is triune, then knowing God begins to put all of life together for us. And that is why we need to teach this in our junior highs and high schools and in our congregations, helping people to see the power of the gospel and the truth of God in relation to everything else. Atheism, atheism doesn't have anything. Pantheism doesn't have anything. Polytheism doesn't have anything. The triune God of the Bible is everything. So you're going to be doing a study in a few minutes after lunch on the, on the spirit. And I don't know what you think about when you think about the Holy Spirit. Probably it's kind of a, as one put it, a gray oblong blur. Uh, one of Gordon Fee's students put it that way. Here's a national survey just a year ago, Lifeline, Lifeway Ministries and, and Ligonier Ministries. Notice what is said here. Both of these are horrendous. First one says, the question is, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. You just studied something about that, didn't you? Just had that question. Notice that, notice that these are the self-professing evangelicals. Over five, nearly 600. They say they believe in the Trinity, but then when they're asked that question, I don't know, maybe they're eating dinner or something too when they get a telephone call. Jesus, is he the first and greatest being created by God? Look at that. 71% said, yeah, I think so. And another, what, 20 plus percent say, I'm not sure. These are evangelicals. These are the people in your Sunday school classes. Less than 10% said, no, that's not right. He's eternal. He's not created. 
Well, maybe the language is a little confusing there, but then we come to the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit a force, not a personal being? That's pretty clear. And look at what is said. 56% of evangelicals who say they believe in the Trinity then say, no, he's just a force, not a personal being. And look at all the others that really don't know. Less than 10% or about 10% said, no, he's really God. He's personal and and truly divine. When we trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, this is the gospel, by the way, when we trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who through his death on the cross makes us right with God, that's the gospel. You believe it. And in that moment of saving faith, we are, by the Spirit, born again. We're regenerate. God comes into our life. The words of, uh, that we see in 1 John 3 is that the very seed of God, the, the Greek word is sperma, by the way, the very seed of God is in us, and now we will reflect our Father. We should reflect God's character through what we are, and those who don't are the children of the devil who, who reveal who their Father truly is. At the moment of saving faith, we are indwelled by God the Spirit. He lives in us. We're made new creation. We receive the gift of eternal life. Let me get to it there. We are sealed forever. I love this part. It is like that stamp of gold or silver that the emperor might send out. Nobody breaks that seal. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's down payment in our lives. Think of the most wonderful experience you have ever had with God where you sense maybe you're trembling with the very presence of the Holy Spirit, that's just a down payment of what someday we will experience as we're glorified and with the Lord forever. A down payment. Wow. We are baptized into the body of Christ. We are placed into that body with Christ as our head. We are filled sometimes with special power. That is like an Acts 4. You've got Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and Peter just healed a lame man at the gate, beautiful, and the religious authorities were upset, say the least. And Peter and John, these simple fishermen who'd been with Jesus for three years, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter preached with boldness. They were taken back. What do we do with this? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, they came out of that rather well. The Sanhedrin sent them away, tell them not to talk about this Jesus anymore. They what? If God's told us to do this, we surely will. But then they went back and joined the other disciples, told the story, and were told again in chapter 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, these are ebbs and flows of the Holy Spirit. When you pray that the Lord will fill you or, or help you to speak to a friend about the Lord or, or, to, or to teach a Sunday school class or to pray well, there's a filling of the Spirit that is a, a, a sometimes momentary special unction of God on our life to do his will in his way. But there's another sense of the filling of the Spirit as well. And we see that right after that in Acts 6, where the, where the apostles tell the church to choose men among you who are characterized by a fullness in the Spirit. And so we are to be characterized by God's control in our life, even though sometimes then there is a a, I don't want to say ebb and flow particularly, but sometimes the Lord empowers us in special ways, that power of the Holy Spirit. So all of this is ours 
through the cross and by faith in our Lord Jesus. Obviously, 9 and 10, particularly 9 and 10, uh, have to do with our obedience and seeking the Lord even further. further. But I think all of us, that's why you're here, you want to know more about Trinity. Every one of us, every genuine Christian, desires more of the Holy Spirit. That is a deeper intimacy, clearer direction, greater power. Even though the Spirit lives in us, so in one sense it's not more of the Spirit, but is a greater presence of the Spirit in our lives. And I don't know about you, but sometimes... You know, I'm studying scripture, I'm looking at Acts and other places, and I, I want to say, Lord, not just Peter and Paul, I want to experience your fullness, your reality, your power in, our, in my life as well. So we all yearn for more, don't we? But as we yearn for the Spirit, there's a great deal of rhetoric and talk about the fullness of the Spirit or that kind of thing. A lot of times we're, we're talking about a Holy Spirit that we really don't know. In terms of biblical, what does the Bible say? Who is God, the Holy Spirit? And we might ask from the outset, why is there a lack of biblical evidences about this one called the Holy Spirit, that he's really God? Why doesn't the Bible just come out like it does with Jesus and say he's really God? But the scriptures don't quite do that. Maybe because the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father, and that is his desire. Well, let's talk about it for a moment. All right, Holy Spirit, pneuma is the, is the Greek term, spirit. It's mentioned about 275 times in the New Testament. And at least as we go to the Old Testament, the term ruach, uh, spirit, can mean a lot of things, breath or breathing hard or a wind and so forth. But at least 100 times we see the spirit mentioned in the Old Testament. And again, sometimes that spirit is mentioned as the finger of God, the power of God in rather impersonal terms, other times very personal terms, and as a divine person distinct from God the Father and the Son. Wow. So let's look a little bit at why we say the Holy Spirit is not an oblong blur, not a radar beam, not uh, an impersonal force, as that survey asked, but rather truly a person. Notice well, John 14, 26, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. A radar beam doesn't do that. That's very, the Advocate, the Parakletos, which is a word applied to Jesus by John in 1 John 2. But Jesus is saying this Advocate, this Advocate, this Counselor, is will teach and remind you of all these things. And again, when the advocate comes to you, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Here's a spirit with intelligence, with a mind, with a will. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I love this passage because, well, let's read the whole text. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? So the Spirit of God is like God's own Spirit and yet can come forth distinct from the Father with the very depth, uh, the very truths of God. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This is what we speak, words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths 
in spiritual words. That is a good text for the inspiration of Scripture, but also the, the very personal deity of the Holy Spirit. There's another text, and you know many of these, but Romans chapter 8, verse 27. God who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Spirit knows the mind of God and reveals it, but now indwelling us, God knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. Well, you'll, the Spirit also manifests emotions. I mean, the Father thinks, wills, and has affections, like that Luke 15, the, Samarit, uh, the, 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 the father of the prodigal son running out and embracing him, and Jesus said, this is like what the father is like. The son has thinking and willing and emotions, and the spirit thinks and wills and has emotions as well. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's quoting, actually, the Old Testament as well. Well, who do we grieve when we mess up? We don't, again, grieve an impersonal force. We don't grieve a soldier or a policeman. You're under arrest. You're getting a ticket, whatever it might be. They really don't care. Who do we grieve when we sin? We grieve someone who loves us, don't we? we grieve our mom or whoever it might be. But the Spirit loves us and grieves when we sin. And that's right in the context of gossip and anger and many other things there in Ephesians 4. Again, in Hebrews 10, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has now insulted the Spirit of grace? Wow. And that's written to believers. Well, I told you I like art. Here's one that went up in flames about 10 years ago in Dallas. It was 124 feet long, 20 feet high, and there was a fire just after I'd taken a group into the Biblical Arts Museum of Dallas. And it all went up in flames, right across the street from a, a north... Uh, uh, oh, I forgot the name of the mall, though there were Stanley Marcus, Neiman Marcus, all that is. Stanley Marcus is painted in there as a Jewish guy. He wanted in the, in the picture as well. And it keeps going both directions. That's not all that's there. But the Holy Spirit is a person, and there we see Pentecost and Peter preaching in the midst of it all. Not only does he have intelligence and a mind and emotions, sometimes we see very explicitly his will at work. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I have called them. Wow. Acts 15, 28, I love this text because uh, this is the way churches ought to be, huh? And as they came together, Jerusalem counselor, Council, then they say it seemed good, as they write the, the, the other churches, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following. And then the few rules that the Jerusalem Council sent to Gentile Christians. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I love that. Talk about fellowship in the Spirit. That's the way it ought to be, huh? Well, in Paul, uh, with Paul in Acts 16, 6, Paul and his companions traveled through Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit 
from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And so, kept by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leads in our lives, doesn't he? And 1 Corinthians 12, you know this well. All these gifts of the Spirit are the work of the one and same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. So as we think of the Spirit, he really is personal. There's, there's all kinds of evidence there. And that's what the early church understood. We need to understand that as well. Jesus calls the Spirit another counselor. And that kind of Greek language, alon parakleton, alon means one of the same kind. If Jesus is God, a distinct person of the Godhead, then that other counselor is so as well. Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Well, I'll tell you, in struggling to understand the Spirit, is he really God? I think when we step back and look at Matthew 12, this perhaps is the most powerful single evidence of all. Because here Jesus has just healed a man who is demon-possessed, he's blind, and he's mute. He can't talk. And he heals him, and the religious authorities show up and say, whoa, this isn't of God, this is of the devil. Who do you think you are? And the debate goes on. Jesus responds. Listen to what he says. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now, every sin and blasphemy, well, that's clearly against God above all else. Blasphemy in the Old Testament is blasphemy of Jehovah, of Yahweh, of God. That can be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's him, will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. We'll let other meanings sit on that. But for the while, look at this. Blasphemy against the Father and the Son can be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin and illumination and our need for the Savior. Without the Spirit's grace in our lives, we have no hope. So we say the Holy Spirit is a person. He has intelligence. He manifests emotions. Demonstrates his personal will. He is the other counselor like the Son, like Jesus. Blasphemy against the Spirit is the greatest of sins in this world. And the Spirit does what God does. He comforts, he guides, and, and so much more. So the Spirit, the Spirit is a person. I suppose we could say a little about the Spirit being deity as well. And I think it's good to touch on a few of those. We have Matthew 28, 19. Again, this yoking together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit under the sacred name. Acts 5, uh, 3 and 4, and then verse 9. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, you know, they lied to Peter about giving all their goods to the church. I mean, they gave a lot, but they said they gave it all, and they hadn't. And so Ananias is there, and Peter questions him, and he says, he's li you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. And Ananias is struck dead. Sapphira didn't know about it. This is a very united couple in the Bible, by the way. They have a great marriage, apparently, but the wrong way. And so she comes in, and, mm, well, Peter questions her, she too dies and is carried out because she lied to the Holy Spirit 
And great fear came over the church. Wow. If that happened today, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Here's the text that in my skepticism toward Trinity, I found the most persuasive of all. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, here it's translated freedom, or there is liberty. And again, it's repeated, the Lord who is the Spirit. Wow. So the Spirit is Lord. And as later on in the Athanasian Creed, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Spirit is Lord. But there are not three lords, but one Lord. So that the church was developing in their understanding. But if the indirect evidences for Jesus' deity are strong and persuasive, all the more it is the indirect evidences for the Holy Spirit. So his attributes, his works, his titles, I mean, just glance at them. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. David says, where can I flee from your spirit? If I go into the sky, into the highest, or to the lowest, to the horizon, wherever I go, there you are. The spirit of God, spirit of holiness, the spirit of truth, spirit of life. He is the spirit of grace and glory. And so, attributes. To resist the spirit, to quench the spirit, to grieve the spirit, is to do so to God. And so, as John Calvin put it, all the specific attributes of God the Father and now Christ the Son are also attributed to the Spirit. So, of course he's God. What about his divine works? Well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit is already there, uh, hovering over the waters and soon bringing life and all the rest. Isaiah 40 says, The Spirit of God has made me the breath of the Almighty, gives me life. Inspiration of Scripture, we call it the Word of God, but it's the Scripture that the Spirit inspired using men of God. Generation of Jesus, when he was conceived, the Spirit regenerates us as Christians, baptizes and dwells and makes us sons. We are temples of God, we're told. And there are at least 40 titles of the Spirit as well, including Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the Son, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Jesus, the other counselor. We see these titles yoking the Spirit very close with Father and Son, and yet distinct, as we are seeing, as a person of the Godhead, but one who desires, who lifts up the Son and the, and the Father preeminently. But listen to one of the early church fathers. Gregory of Nyssa, sometimes called the, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a little complicated, the wording, so try to follow along. If then all the attributes ascribed to the divine nature, meaning Father and Son already, are of equal force as regards their designation of the subject, so really saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one nature, what reason is there that one, while allowing the Spirit community with the Father and Son, in other attributes, should exclude him from the Godhead alone. Why should he be excluded? For if he is worthy in the case of those attributes, he is surely not less worthy in this being called or the appellation of God. Well, the early church was putting it together at that point. What we want to come to is the conclusion. The Holy Spirit is fully a person and fully God a distinct member of the Godhead. But in all of this, 
we might just ask, so what? I mean, does it really make any difference? I'm going to say, of course it does. Remember that in biblical revelation, the Father's in heaven, and now the Son who's been glorified and ascended into heaven, they're in heaven, Father and Son. Remember Stephen, he sees the Son of Man, he sees the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father as he's being stoned in Jerusalem. So the Father and Son, in a primary sense, are there. Now, they're all God, but their presence comes especially to us through the Holy Spirit. If we are regenerate, so indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are also in Christ. And it's Christ in us, the hope of glory, as Paul would say. And we are even temples of the living God, 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere. And so Augustine could say, we as believers, in one sense, are indwelled by the Father, temples of God, and the Son, we are in Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But it is preeminently through the Spirit that the Son and the Father come to us. So there is a particular order that God has asked us to, to follow. Gordon Fee put it this way, the Spirit literally is the personal presence of God sent into our hearts and into the church. So I've been lecturing quite a bit here. So let's ask some practical questions, all right? You're saying, finally. <laughs> practical questions, all right? We sing holy, holy, holy. And a lot of other hymns, actually. But should we worship the Holy Spirit? Should we worship the Holy Spirit? I think I better take a roll call here. Would you raise your hand if you think we should worship the Holy Spirit? Are you afraid this is a trick question? Well, most hands are going up. Say, what are you doing? I'm putting my hand in the air too. So put both hands in the air. That's good as well. Uh, we can do that sometimes. Listen to R.A. Torrey, one of my heroes, co-evangelist a little bit later too of, of, of D.L. Moody, founder of Moody Bible Institute, and R.A. Torrey founded the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, called Biola University, Talbot Seminary, Rosemead School of Theology, all of that. Listen to what R.A. Torrey says. It is of maximum importance to decide whether the Holy Spirit is a divine person who deserves our worship, faith, love, and submission to him, or if he's simply an influence which comes from God, or a power, or an illumination that God gives. If the Holy Spirit is a person, a divine person, and we do not recognize him as such, then we are robbing a divine being of worship, faith, submission, and love that he deserves. Wow. Actually, John Owen, famous Anglican scholar of the 17th century, uh, writing on the communion uh, with the Holy Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Crossway recently republished part of this book edited by Justin Taylor and one other, in a little more common language. But John Owen was criticized by some, saying, oh, you're going too far. But John Owen said, no, we worship each member of the Godhead for what they do in our lives and appropriate to what each member of the Godhead does for us. Now, some go way overboard in one exaggeration or another, don't they? But it seems the members of the Godhead each desire and should receive our worship in one sense. Well, a second question comes in here. 
Theology actually is practical, you know. Uh, should we pray to the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Well, we should clearly pray to the Father. That's the pattern of Scripture, isn't it? Are there prayers to the Son, to Jesus, in Scripture? What do you think? Yeah, there are some. In fact, the more you count, well, look, look at it in the book of Revelation and the praise and honor and glory to the Lamb and the worship that occurs there, but certainly other times as well. Again, Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit as he is being stoned to death. So should we pray, though, to the Holy Spirit? What do you say? Are there any prayers to the Holy Spirit in the Scripture? Well, I'll make a long silence shorter. There really aren't. There really aren't. So what do we do with this? Does that mean, does that, does that mean we should never pray to the Holy Spirit, even though He's God? Well, I'll give you my opinion here as to what I think. I think sometimes it is appropriate to Pray to the Holy Spirit, Lord, open my eyes so that I can understand this, this text in the Bible or, or, or fill me with your presence so that I can witness to my friends and be what I should be or help me overcome this temptation. The Lord's generous. We mess up sometimes and pray to the wrong person, don't we? So God loves us and we're his children that kind of fumble around and trying to know him better. But, but I think occasionally, according to what the Spirit does his activities in the word it is appropriate but it is not normative here's a response i want to give the spirit is fully a person and fully god he deserves our worship but in the broader context because the spirit's desire and delight he's the one that inspired the word he could have thrown in a few prayers to himself and all of that but his desire and delight is to glorify the son and the father there's a generosity, a, a beauty, a self-givingness, in, in some ways especially evident in the Spirit as we look on, on the Father. And so, I've got some questions for you. We have all kinds of people here. And one of the questions we have to ask every one of us ourselves is, well, have I experienced personally the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? Am I sure that when, if I really put my faith in God, of course he's come in, but have I really placed my faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Am I sure that I am a believer? Have I experienced the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Spirit? Listen to Romans chapter 8, one of those great passages, the whole chapter, at least much of the chapter, on the Holy Spirit. You, however, are controlled. That's present tense. Not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. He's not saying we never fail, but that should be our controlling reality. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's a serious statement. And so... You and I, and those that we love, we need to, well, you and I need to confirm before God that we're really asking him to make himself real. We're believing the promises of God. Those are ours forever and ever, but there should be that witness in the spirit. 
I say, how do we now experience the Spirit? Well, continuing in Romans 8, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, again present tense, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We should sense the Spirit of God reminding us, helping us to say, thank you, Lord. Often I wake up in the morning, usually, and I, and I may be kind of blurry, but there's that sense that, Lord, thank you. You're confirming, even at this moment, that I'm really your child, and that's precious. Now, some might have to have some coffee ahead of time, but, but God does confirm his reality through the Spirit in us. So I ask, how do we experience the Spirit? I think that being a child of the church in many ways, we often set up Christian faith around rules. You know, we talk about the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, and, and all the rules that were there, but if you stayed in the box, you're okay. Now, there's some commandments that gave a little trouble, like, like that of lusting after your neighbor or something like that. But by and large, we could look pretty good on the outside and, and be okay. We were in the camp. When we come to the New Testament, the box is much larger because we're now talking about a transcultural box, one that now fits Gentile nations and those all over the world. And so the box of freedom is much greater. There's still commandments. Uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. If I have a guy coming up and saying, hey, this is really cool. You know, I'm living with my girlfriend and all of that. And I said, Loving the Spirit? No, you're not. You're deceiving yourself. You're outside God's Word and the explicit instructions of Scripture. So there are limitations to that box. There's freedom that we must protect. Also the box. But the difference between Old Testament and New Testament, the difference between living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and a life that's just trying to conform on the outside, is that now when we are regenerate, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it gets joyous sometimes, and it gets painful other times, because this is the Holy Spirit. And so he goes into the closet and under the bed and into the back drawer of my life and says, that needs to go. Don't worry about the others in the church. They may be able to do that stuff, but you don't. That's the law of the Spirit. I mean, you have the commandments, but you also have the living God living in us, and that's what makes Christian faith so different from everything else. We're try not trying to keep the five obligations of Islam. We're not trying to do this or that according to some denomination. Rather, we listen to the Spirit in our lives. Christ is our head. The Spirit is that one that brings that conviction into our lives. And I would even go further. I would say that when the Spirit of God moves in your life, it says, do this. Or do that. You say, oh Lord, that's really embarrassing. What my friends think? Or what? They're all doing that. Why can't I? You obey the Spirit. That brings the cross into your life, but it also brings the fullness of our Lord into your life as well. That's Christian life. Galatians 5 is all about this. You know, you can keep the law as the Galatians were trying to do. You can even be a decadent sinner, but if you're not walking in the Spirit, then you're really not living the Christian life. That's what it is all about. So I exhort you, listen. We're framed by the Word of God, so don't go outside the Word, but 
we should be led by the Spirit in our lives, consciously obeying the Spirit. And again, sometimes He takes us where we don't want to go. But godly lives are sometimes those that sacrifice quite a lot. You know, uh, I suppose sometimes the Lord has worked graciously in all of our lives different ways, but I, I went into the Caribbean. I wanted to know on the island of Tobago in Trinidad, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, will he really provide the food and shelter and everything else that we need that seems to me Jesus promised? After the excitement of learning about the Trinity, it's like the Lord led me there. Didn't have hardly any money at all and went a little hungry sometimes, but sometimes the fullness of the Lord was so, so amazing. You're going to think I'm crazy, but I remember standing in front of a bar by the ocean in Tobago, and, and it was noon, and I'd been memorizing a, a sermon by D.L. Moody, and I was preaching it in the open air, and people were walking by, and most probably thought I was crazy. But I was in a good sense. I mean, I had that sensation once in a while in your life, you may feel this, that there, preaching the gospel, I was obeying the Lord. In all of time and space, I exist for this. This is what I'm made for. Now, not every day is that way by any means, but wow, overwhelming as we follow the Spirit and do kind of, well, I don't want to say do dumb things. Trinidad in those days and Tobago is not downtown Atlanta, but we obey the Spirit, don't we? So Galatians, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict, one, uh, one with the other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Oh God, thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you, the living Spirit, live within us. May we honor you by honoring and glorifying the Son, by taking up our cross and following him, and so giving glory to the Father. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.